Kära litteraturälskande lyssnare, här har ni mig, Ingemar Fast, konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Och innan samtalet kör igång så vill jag säga följande. En gång för några år sedan satt jag på en restaurang med en kvinna som berättade om det unika och mångåriga kulturprojekt som pågår inom Östersunds fotbollsklubb ÖFK. Det handlade om teater, konst, ballett, ett bokprojekt med mera som involverade alla från de aktiva spelarna till kanslipersonalen. Och när Karin Wallén som denna kulturcoach heter sedan droppade att en grupp spelare och annan personal startat en bokcirkel och valt romanen Americana av en viss Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie då blev jag överväldigad. Helt överväldigad. Och man kan säga att där över den kallnade okskinden såddes det frö som så småningom skulle bära frukt. I samarbete med ÖFK inbjöd vi författaren och förebilden till internationell författarsen och vi önskar att de skulle komma den 26 november 2018. Hon svarade ja. Och när det var dags lämnade hon Lagos för en lång flygresa, landade om morgonen, hänryckte samma kväll publiken från stora scenen för att morgonen därefter återvända hem. Här möter ni Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie i ett samtal med Ami Bramesi. Och medverkar gör även Judith Barker och en viss nyckelspelare när det gäller bokcirkeln. Han talar via sin nya plats på jorden som spelare i Bali United. Och hans namn är Bro Nuri. Hi. Hello. Hello everyone. Thank you for that welcome. This is why I like Sweden. Yeah. Um, before we start off our conversation about why you love Sweden so much. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We're not going to talk about Sweden that much. Uh, I just would like to say something about this whole evening um, because, you know, I've never experienced, and I know that Kulturhuset, where, where we're at right now, they've never experienced this type of hype leading up to an event like this. It's, it's something like we have a, a rock star or a superstar in the house right now. And, you know, when they drop the, uh, the tickets to, to go and listen to Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie talk this summer, I mean, people out here, they've been doing the absolute most to get these tickets. And you guys are the ones that got the tickets and you're here tonight. <laughs> so, yeah, it's very big. <laughs> Um, so, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, you arrived here today from Lagos, Nigeria, and you're going back tomorrow to Lagos. Yes. Just a quick in and out. Yes. So, I think uh, f- for myself and probably the, the majority of the people in here uh, who have never visited Nigeria or Lagos, we know, the most of the things we know about your home country is through your words and your books. Mm. Tell us a little bit about your city, about Lagos. Um, Maybe the first thing to say is that we do, in fact, have bookshops. Some. (laughs) Some people get the joke. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> so I came from Lagos, and maybe the one significant thing is the traffic, because then I had to leave too early for the airport and all of that. No, Lagos, Nigeria is home. I'm a person who thinks, I now think of myself as a person who has two homes. Um, I didn't for a long time, because I, I, it, it, it was a journey for me towards getting to think of America as home. But, but to be in, and so I have two homes and I live in two places, but I'm, I still think of Nigeria as the place where I least question myself and my belonging. And it's also the place that um, I have the most complex feelings about. It's the place I most complain about. Hmm. It's, uh, what do you complain about? Everything. <laughs> like? Um, electricity. Oh. I have two generators. One uses diesel, one uses petrol, and they're constantly breaking down. And um, so that's a major complaint. And then, so electricity all the time, all the time. Um, just the, the sense of sort of unrestrained chaos. But I should say that it's the same thing that makes Lagos appealing. So, so I think that both things coexist. It's that energy that leads to a certain kind of chaos that also leads to a certain kind of of can-do-ness, a kind of... Um, Lagos is... And when I say exhilarating, I don't mean it in a kind of touristy or look how a terrible place can excite you way, but more that there's a resilience to people. Mm. There is... Um, you know, I just think that you can find anything in Lagos. You can find anyone who can do anything. You find the most talent, the most... It's, so it's exhilarating in that way, mm. in the way that the, what people are and what people can do. And I find that I, I take pride in that. I also find that energizing. Mm. And I laugh a lot in Lagos, which I, I like my life in the U.S. I like the quiet. I like the stable electricity very much. <laughs> but I don't laugh as often. Mm. But that type of chaos that you describe, is that something that you have inside yourself from growing <laughs> up in Lagos? No, I didn't grow up in Lagos. I grew up in a small university town. So, I, no, I don't have that chaos. I grew up, in a, um, I grew up in, a, in a town that actually had no chaos about it, which it was very quiet, very safe, very happy. And I think of Lagos now as my home, but I'm not from Lagos. And, and there's a difference. There are people who grew up there who, who I think have a different relationship to Lagos. And so in Nigeria, in some ways, I have two homes in Nigeria. Lagos is sort of home, but also my ancestral hometown, where my parents now live, which is entirely different. It really is a village. Mm. And, and I love that as well. So it's interesting for me thinking about, um, about home and about identity and thinking about the way that it means being different layers of yourself mm. in different places. Mm. Yeah. But I'm happy that I'm going back tomorrow, I have to say. Yeah? Yes. Mm. I mean, I really like Sweden, but I'm happy. <laughs> I'll come back. We're happy about that. But it's also that I'm actually in the middle of teaching a writing workshop in Lagos. And ah. Yes, and this is the first time I've broken my workshop to, to leave for two days. So this is a testimony of my uh, affection for Sweden. You hear so that? My, my writing workshop is going on. <laughs> I'm teaching, uh, it's a two-week writing workshop that I do every year. And, and who can come and take the workshop? Anybody. Anybody on paper, but really mostly Nigerians. Mm. So right now we have, we have 22 people, and we have um, somebody from Uganda, somebody from um, Kenya, 
and uh, we have three people who are non Nigerian, one from Cameroon. Mm. So, my vision for it is really to be Pan African, but, but um, because I'm also Nigerian, uh, for a Nigerian, Pan African means 80% Nigerian and 20% other. <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't do equality in Nigeria. No, not at all. Yeah, that's what Pan African means to us. <laughs> so, okay. Um, when, you were, when you were a young woman, you got up and you left Nigeria behind. You moved to America. So I want to talk to you a little bit about the moving to America and becoming black, sort of. Mm. And I'm wondering, what early memories can you recall of realizing what being black means? Mm. In America, because I, I wasn't black in Nigeria. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you came to America, yeah. and then you realized that you are black. Yes. And what being black means. Yes. What, what, what memories do you have from that time? I have two that, that are fresh because I, I relive them often. And the first is I'm in Brooklyn. Um, I've been in the U.S. a few weeks. And I am in a store, and I, and I think it was a store that sold envelopes, because I was buying envelopes. And an African-American man called me sister. And my first sort of, I recoiled, and I thought, I'm not your sister. Mm. Um, actually, even more unkindly, I thought, I have two sisters. Oh, I'm sorry, I have three brothers, and I know exactly where they are, and you're not one of them. That was most of my thinking. But really, what it meant... <laughs> We all have our unkind moments. I think I have too many of those. But anyway, I... Um, but, but really, when I think about it now, what it was, it was actually... It was my... The moment when I... I had been in the U.S. only a few weeks, but I had watched a lot of local television mm. in which it's a constantly... It's a parade of African-American men um, as criminals. And that's the only thing you see. So there's a sense in which, as a person who doesn't know America, who's only come, you start to think that to be African-American means to be associated with crime, with violence, with all of that. And my, by saying I'm not your sister, I, was, I really was saying I'm not black because I have come to see that black means all of these negative stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, been, it's been 20, more than 20 years, and I'm still very ashamed of that moment. Because, um, you know, it came from ignorance, obviously. I didn't know, I didn't know about American history. Mm. But it also, I think, if I were to put a more um, positive vibe to it, it would be that also it was my way of... Um, it was an indictment of American racism. If blackness were not so weighted with negativity, I would not have felt the need to say, I'm not your sister. Mm. And the other thing was when I was in... in and then I went and I... I I was in college, and I wrote an essay, and the professor would sent in the essays by email, and he said, I want to know who wrote this essay, and he said, um, it's somebody called Adichie, because they um, always mispronounce my name, and I had used my last name and my initials, so I don't think there was anything that sort of strongly suggested that the person who had that name was black. And when I raised my hand, he looked surprised. And it was a very small moment, but I knew that he was surprised I was black. He hadn't expected the person who wrote the essay to be black. And for my Nigerian self, this was very complex. I had come from a place where, black, where people who looked like me um, were the norm. Hmm. You know, so I had seen 
black achievement as normal. I had seen um, people who were black having positions of power as normal. And suddenly in the US, it was different. Black achievement was remarkable. People talked often about, oh, the first black so-and-so. Mm. Which, by the way, is another thing that just infuriates me. Because I think for us to talk about that and celebrate that, I think it's imperative that we talk about why. Mm. Right? The reason that even Obama and all of the celebrations about Obama, I just really wanted to have a bit more texture. I wanted a bit more of, so he's the first, right? And that's lovely. But why is he the first? Mm -hmm. He's the first because there's been institutionalized exclusion. It's not because the, somehow there weren't any black people who were capable of being president, right? Mm -hmm. um, anyway, no, I, I will try and, and keep to the question. So, <laughs> so I really, I, 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 so those two things are the things that are very, very, very clear in my mind. And, mm -hmm. and I think that that's why I then started to read African-American history because I wanted to understand Mm. Right. What does this mean when people, when black people in America say, oh my God, I'm so offended. He said something about a watermelon. And I'm sitting there thinking, I, I don't know why watermelon is bad. I quite like watermelons. But it's kind of, because you don't know the history, you don't know the context, right? So things that you might say, oh, there's nothing wrong with that, but there's a history to it and there's a story. Mm. And I started reading to try and understand and learn that. And I became black. Mm. Right? So I became and I think of it as taking on an identity. America forces blackness on you when you look a certain way, right? Um, but, but I think there are two ways to identity. I think there is also that conscious decision to become something. And, um, and so now if I went to Brooklyn and he called me sister, I'd be like, you brother, yes, <laughs> I love you. But um, it... it <laughs> but you know, because... Yeah. But, but I think in general, in thinking about race, the thing that... The only reason I think race matters is racism. Mm. I mean, I don't think that we should be talking about race if racism were not an issue. Because then it wouldn't matter. People would just be people, right? I, we would just have different shades of foundation. But that would be it. Mm. But instead, it's that... And we would probably have more shades of uh, foundation. Oh, we would have many yeah. more shades yeah. of foundation. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Because yeah. actually, see, this is the thing. Foundation as metaphor for racism. Feeling ashy, yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't have issues with ashiness, you wouldn't have exactly. issues with not having the right undertones. Yeah, the big problems yeah, in life. Yeah. I think some of the men here are like, what the hell is <laughs> But true. So um, this, this understanding your blackness, yeah. did that come with a side of internalized racism? Hmm. Define that. I think that um, for me, myself, growing up in a white majority society here in Sweden, now that I'm a grown woman, I realized uh, how internalized racism, how racism uh, that grew inside of myself, mm -hmm. like the idea of being black being something mm -hmm. bad that you talked about, mm -hmm. and maybe the idea of wanting to adjust yourself more to the white mm. society, maybe mm. when it comes to your hair, the way that you talk, and mm. becoming more white. Mm. Do you know, the, the opposite yeah. of being a proud black girl or woman or man. You know, what's interesting to me about that is because my experience was different in the sense that I didn't grow up in a white majority place. I grew up in a black majority place, mm. where, by the way, race was not even a thing. I mean, Nigerians, and this is the thing, about even Nigerians who live now in Nigeria don't really get race. Mm. So sometimes they'll say, um, I don't know, what's all the fuss? 
because it's not part of their lived reality. They get tribalism, okay. right? They get religious, um, they get religion yeah. as identity marker. They mm. get when somebody is anti-Islam or anti-Christian. They get when you're anti-Yoruba, anti-Ibu. They don't really get race because it's not part of their lived reality. And, mm. and so because I think I was um, fortunate, I'm going to say fortunate really, to, have, to grow up not, not knowing I was black mm. and to come to that as an adult... Then I think the negativity that I internalized, and I should say that I think that to live in a society that's racist mm. means that you internalize something, and I don't care how everybody does. It's, I think it's like the air you breathe. Mm. Um, so I did internalize some of it, and I think in some ways my saying I'm not your sister mm. is a version of sort of, it's, it's racism, mm. right? Because it's, it's my saying I have accepted that black is negative, mm. therefore I recoil from it. Mm. But I also think that um, growing up not knowing I was black, I think, um, was a privilege. It was a privilege. And it's a privilege that's afforded me the ability to embrace blackness and to know how wholly beautiful blackness is, while acknowledging that some people just didn't get the memo that it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. right? So, but I think, it's a, I think it's a consequence of having grown up in, in, in a country that just didn't do race. Mm. And it's not, just, it's not about Africa in particular, it's about, I think, West Africa. Because had I grown up in Kenya or South Africa mm. or Zimbabwe, mm. I think it would have been a very different experience. Mm. Because there, race is a, is a present thing. Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah, when it comes to colorism and, and racism. Colorism is even more interesting. Mm. Because, um, I mean, within black communities, um, everywhere... Mm. And I come from, <laughs> my family is, uh, my mother is very light-skinned. Mm -hmm. So I have a younger brother who people in America constantly think he is mixed race okay. or Hispanic. He's really that light. So my mother's family, they're quite light. Mm. And in Nigeria, Igbo people in general are known to be light-skinned. So people will say things like, oh, um, um, she's Igbo yellow. Because the sort of connotation is Igbo people are, are yellow. Igbo light. yellow. Yeah, Igbo yellow. That's a new word for me <laughs> and for you. Add it to your vocabulary. Igbo yellow. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was growing up, um, people would meet my brother and light skin automatically connotes beauty. It doesn't actually matter if the people are beautiful. You're light skin, they're like, oh, you're so... And so they'll meet my brother and they'd be like, do you have a sister? And they'd be like, we want to meet her. Because the assumption is she must look like you. She must be light. And then I would appear, and then everybody would be like, oh, goodness. They'd be really disappointed. <laughs> but, I, but this was my early uh, experience with colorism. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it, I, it, it wasn't, it's not like it destroyed my life or anything. I still grew up a very confident child. And, and I think in Nigeria, there's room for beauty being a diverse thing, mm. right? There is a sense in which light skin is valued, and I think that's the case in every community of color, not just black people, right? Mm. I, spent, I, mean, I remember going to Sri Lanka and just being amazed mm. at, I mean, India is the same, I mean, um, but, uh, you know, Nigeria has that, mm. but still, the, 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 it's a flexible thing, I think. There's a sense in which beauty is still, you know, mostly seen as a diverse thing, mostly. But in Swedish, we don't even have a word for colorism. So when we're talking about colorism, or when we try to, in the whole discussion about racism in Sweden, mm. try to talk about colorism, mm. you often get a little bit misunderstood because we don't have our own word and term mm. for that. Mm. 
So, is there a word for racism, though? Yes. Okay, just check in. Because in Germany, they tell me they can't talk about racism because there's no language for it. What? They don't have a word for it? Like, no, we can't because, you know, if we talk about it, it means... That's an easy way out. No, we don't know what to say. But why... But I'm curious, though. So, why... When you try to talk about it here in this country, what, what, how is it misunderstood? People think it means that... I think it on, it's only because, um, because of how far the discussion of racism, or not far, the discussion of racism has come in Sweden. Mm. We still debate... I mean, there's a lot of people in Sweden that de- talk about racism in, in a very intellectual way, but there's a lot of people in Sweden who still are wondering why you can say the n-word why is that a problem and we have that we have that debate oh you would have been so tired if you lived here mm. <laughs> we still have that debate and we still if you if you um if you try to raise the question of why is it so few people of color working maybe in journalism in sweden telling the stories you yeah it's mm. a, it's definitely a debate going on but it's very it's 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 quite slow i must mm. say So to talk about colorism, to talk about like the hierarchies within racism and yeah. dark skin, light skin, yeah. etc., we have not come that far yet. But I mean, tonight we're talking about it. Yeah. Well, so it's a start. Yes. I think. Well, I think maybe also it's that some people are just confused because there are many people for whom black is one color. Hmm. No, this is true though, and I've always found it very amusing because <laughs> I mean, I sort of I can tell with white people who's. I can sort of tell who needs a lighter shade of foundation. You know, I can tell who needs medium. I can tell. But apparently many white people can't. So, <laughs> so I have a friend, a dear, dear friend, who's been to Africa many times. He's an Englishman, much older. Mm-hmm. And I once visited with a friend of mine who's much, much darker than I am. Yeah. And he couldn't tell the difference. He... Between, what, between, between you two? Yes. But you said this was your friend. I mean, he's become a friend. <laughs> also, he still could become your friend, even though he couldn't tell you guys apart. Yes, because, you know, I think that if we um, permanently cancelled everybody who has a certain form of benign racism, mm-hmm. we would probably cancel three quarters of the world. So it, it has to be a question of, of degree, I think. Yeah. Um, he, he just didn't know. Like 98%. <laughs> I mean, honestly, this, this is so that, awful. This is so. I'm laughing because not to. So I'm yeah, not yeah. Cry. I don't know if you, if if it's happened to you. It's happened to me quite a few times. Actually. It has happened to me a lot of times yeah. that people can't tell me from my cousin or something, and we don't even look that much alike. But but uh, oh, cousin, you're close. I'm talking about complete strangers yeah. who look nothing, <laughs> nothing like me. I remember once going to. I remember once going to a writing. I went to a. This was early, you know, sort of many years ago before it was published. Yeah. And I went to a writing um, conference in in Maine. I remember, and, and you know, Maine is is not a particularly uh, diverse states but I go up there and there are two other black women at this thing and you know there may be a hundred writers there Mm. and and one of the one of the sort of big name writers who was there said to me um oh it was so interesting what you said last night and I thought but I wasn't I haven't even met you So I knew right away what had ha- what was happening, right? That he thought, and then when I, and then I wanted to know who, which of the two black women had been there last night. Yes. And when I saw her, I was like, we look nothing alike. She was tall. She was big. She was very, very dark. She had long braids. I had my hair up in cornrows. But he thought we were the same person. 
I don't know what the solution to that is. But did you laugh about this or did, At the did time, it affect you somehow? I think it depends on the tone. So with the guy who's become my friend, yeah. I was sort of amused because I just thought... It, it, Actually, I said to him, I am so sorry for, for the limited nature of your imagination. Um, with, so I, it's true. I mean, I thought something's wrong, right? Mm. But, but with the guy at the writing workshop, there was just something about it. It had an ugly undertone. It was sort of a... I don't know. He, not only... One got the sense that he wouldn't have cared even if he knew that he'd mistaken one person for another. Mm. Right? Mm. So, so it's always about the context. Yes, yeah. true. Yeah. So, Shemamanda, let's talk a little bit about you becoming a writer. Yes. And um, about representation, about community, and maybe, maybe responsibility. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, because uh, I know that you started writing at a young age. Yes. And that um, in the beginning, your characters were mostly white, blue yes. eyes, blonde hair, and thought that ketchup was a strong sauce. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, <laughs> <way>. <laughs> uh, All right, I don't know where the hell you got that. No, 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 that no, no, no. I just, I made that up. <laughs> that was a lie. <laughs> yeah. But white. So can you tell me about the process That's of... That's actually very good. I might steal it. <laughs> Um, but, but can you tell yeah. us about the process of your characters becoming, becoming black? <sighs> when I started writing, and this is actually still happening with young middle-class Africans who are still mostly consuming books that don't reflect their reality. And so a friend of mine did a workshop with um, young people last year, and she said, they're still writing about white people. Mm. in white countries. I mean, because, in, because you read so many of these books. I grew up reading, I started reading really early, and the books that I read were British books, American books, children's books, and I thought that books were things in which white people did things. I, it just didn't occur to me. And, you know, you're a child, you're impressionable. Mm. And so when I started writing, also really young, I just copied what I was reading. I think to be a writer in many ways is to start off being a mimic of the books you love. Mm. Um, but in general, I think when we copy the writers we love, which I, I, I think of as, as um, a journey to finding your own voice, you often tweak things, right? So, but I didn't tweak anything because I didn't understand or imagine that it was okay for one of the characters to maybe have a Nigerian name or maybe to be black. No, everybody was Kathy and Mark and the dog was Socks and they ate apples, and they played in the snow. I had never seen snow, never tasted an apple. Dogs in Nigeria were not called names like socks. <laughs> they were called bingo, right? <laughs> but I didn't think bingo could exist in, in a book. It had to be socks. And um, so, so it's very interesting, because on the one hand, I, I suppose it was using my imagination, sort of, but also it was, um, yeah, I think there was something about it that, that's dangerous to, to a child because it changed. It changed because I started reading books by Africans. Mm. And I sort of maybe when I was eight or nine, and, I, and the book I remember that really opened up things for me was a, a novel called The Dark Child, mm -hmm. which is sometimes translated to The African Child, but it's actually initially, um, originally in French, L'Enfant Noir, mm. and it's by Kamara Lai. And 
know, I read it and it's actually, in some ways, it was very exotic to me because it was set in this village in Guinea mm. in the 1950s. But it, you know, it was people who were black who did things that kind of were familiar and it was eye-opening for me. Mm. And then I read Chino Achebe and then I read Florent Wapa and then I read uh, Mama Ate Du. I started to, and there's a, there was a, a young adult series then called The Peace Setters that was set in different parts of Africa. That's actually how I came to know Africa, through books, mm. right? through those um, young adult novels. And that kind of changed things for me, actually quite dramatically. So when did you decide that you were going to have this black or uh, African narrative that you have today? I read, I read those books and suddenly they gave me permission. Mm. And, and really, I think it was quite dramatic because you know, I went from writing Kathy and Mark and Socks and, and, and Jenny and all of those things, and I suddenly went really straight to Ngozi and Emeka and Chukwe Buka and, and, and mangoes and rice and gari and yam. So, so it was... It, it's that idea that the book said to me, what those books said to me was, you know, your reality is worthy of literature. Mm. Um, and it's not to say that... I, mean, I enjoyed those, those children's books I read. I love them, actually. Mm. I keep wanting to go back and read Enid Blyton just to see how I'll feel, because apparently, you know, now I think she's supposed to be bad. You know. Oh, yeah, I oh. think she's supposed to be racist and all of those things. Yeah, okay. um, which, when I was a child, I, I, I thought she was fantastic. Right? Yeah. So I kind of, there's, I, there's a part of me that wants to go back and try and recap. It's impossible. The whole point of reading as a child is that childhood is part of the magic. When you go back as an adult, it's different. Hmm. But, um, yeah, I, I, so I don't remember that I sat down and said, I shall now decide to write. No. It's just the way that we read and we internalize things. And so I read, I read, I read Kamaralaye, and suddenly I thought, I can write about a village in Nigeria. Mm. And it can be interesting and riveting. Mm. Yeah. It definitely is. Mm. It definitely is. But um, I'm thinking um, about FUBU, For Us, By Us, Us Being Black People. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, I have to tell you, I'm not very cool. I don't know this. You're not cool. Um, yes, you are. I'm not in the. What? You know, I, there's a sort of there's a sort of millennial coolness that just yeah. leaves me completely alienated. Oh. I don't know what thing. You know, I, I'm not on social media. I don't know like the coolest, latest thing. Well, you have Instagram. I do have Instagram. Everyone in here follows you on Instagram. You have like a two or three hundred thousand people. No, following. no, no. But you <laughs> only follow eight people. Or something. I Is that that's bad? It's, it's no, I, I, it's, I don't. It's you know, it's it's cool. No, no, tell me. See, this is what I mean. I don't know <laughs> social media etiquette. What, should I follow more? No, you don't have to. All right, but here's the thing, actually. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, that's that's it. That's true. oh, thank you, my sister. <laughs> <laughs> but here's I, I don't even do the thing. My my nieces do it for me. So what oh. I do, and and it's not it's social. It's um. Instagram for fashion. Yes. Yeah, because I'm doing this thing I call Project Wear Nigeria. I'm wearing only Nigerian-made designers, mm. and I want to promote Nigerian fashion because it's a fantastic thing. Yeah. And so I take pictures of myself, um, most of in, many of which I look very awkward because I dislike being photographed, but I love fashion. Yeah. And, and then my nieces put it up, and we tag the designers, and sometimes they don't know I'm going to wear them, so they get, oh. they're really happy. So that's what my Instagram thing is. Yeah. I don't actually, ha I, don't, I don't have the app. I don't know how it works. 
But it's also a thing, it's by choice. I mean, I don't want yeah, to... Yeah, it's good. We're happy because you're busy uh, writing stuff that we love to read and doing speech that we love to listen to. And, and, and we can sit and waste our lives on Instagram. Wow. It's fine. But, but it's you fine. know, mm, I'm busy shopping for shoes online. <laughs> <laughs> and um, reading utter rubbish yes. on websites and um, looking at things on Etsy. Oh, I like Etsy a lot. You do? Yes. Mm. And on YouTube, looking at makeup videos. Oh, makeup and, tutorials. Yes. Oh. And natural hair tutorials. Yes. That's <laughs> what I, this is what I spend my time doing. So much as I would like to sit here and be very sensitive, oh, I've been reading and writing. I, really, I've just been wasting my time. But, but, but just not, not, not in the way that you waste yours. <laughs> not, not on social media, because I think social media can be quite toxic. Yeah. But, but, but I'm thinking, um, in your creative process of writing, do you take... Because, I mean, today, people all over the world read your books. And do you feel a responsibility when writing about blackness and writing about the black experience do, do you feel a responsibility no it's interesting that when you first have responsibility you're sort of like maybe right <laughs> yeah um no no i think i think no is the honest answer and i'll tell you why mm. i don't feel a sense of responsibility because i also don't feel the need to be in any way remotely apologetic or overly explaining about blackness. Blackness to me is normal and ordinary. Um, blackness, you know, deserves, a, and doesn't just deserve, has a place at the table, in my thinking. Yes. And, and so I think to talk about responsibility is to constantly frame your, you know, it means that one then frames one, one's consciousness with somebody else's story. And I, I just, I don't do that. And so I'm, I'm very interested in writing about black characters and all of their human complexity. There are, I remember a man in London saying to me, he was um, black British, and he said to me, you know, you, you have to be careful how you write us because, you know, you, you can't make us be bad. Mm. And he was coming from a good place, right? You, you, he was coming from a place of saying, there's so many stereotypes attached to blackness that I want you, as a storyteller writing about black people, to somehow fix it. <laughs> to by make not, us look good. To make us look perfect. Oh. I have, I, you know, it reminds me, there's a, a saying, um, and I forget in which of the books it was, but W.E.B. Du Bois said once, wrote once, that they have so... Um, focused on our negative side that we now pretend that we don't have any negative side at all. And it's a very understandable reaction, but I also think that we run the risk of dehumanizing black people if we decide to say that they're, they're angels. Because the, the, I, think, I think the stereotype of, of the you know, evil, lazy, stupid black person is just as bad as the stereotype of the noble, perfect... You know, sort of like the magic Negro, you know, the black person who's just constantly wonderful and good. I, I don't, I, you know, and, and I think, um, so I'm interested in telling stories of black people because they're human. And my take on it is, if, if somebody reads it and, and decides that somehow it proves black inferiority, it's that person's um, problem. It's that person's imagination that is 
mm. lacking, sadly. So do I feel responsibility? No. However, do I recognize that? Um, because I think it's maybe too easy to say, all right, I don't feel responsibility, end of story. Right? I do know that there are many people in the world who, all they know about Africa is my novel. Exactly. Um, and... So when, when I hear that, oh, so-and-so loved my book in, I don't know, small town, South Korea, for example. Mm. I do sometimes think about it. I think, I hope they get, I mean, I hope, I don't know, I hope they, um, I hope they know it's one of many, many stories. Mm. <laughs> right? mm. when, I, when I first came to the U.S. and my roommates were very surprised by me because they thought, you know, oh my God, you speak English so well. And do you, like, listen to, like, tribal music? Oh, wow. <laughs> what is that? All of that, I, even I don't know what tribal music is, right? <laughs> but all of that, I, I remember thinking, maybe it's because they read Things Fall Apart. The one book that mm. American high schools read quite a bit is Chino Chibes, Things Fall Apart. Yes. And I remember thinking, maybe nobody told them that it's set 100 years ago. So they thought, right, so they probably thought, oh, she's just come from Things Fall Apart. Oh, wow. So she's come from, you know, loincloth and, and yeah. huts and yeah. that kind of thing. I, so I sometimes think about that with my own work where I yeah. think, well, I hope... But you can't fix it, you know. The only way, the only way to fix it is if we have a critical mass of African stories, which, which is... It's changing a little bit. Mm. It's changing. Through your workshop. There's that, yes, because I'm very proud to say that many of the people who've been to my workshop have gone on to write novels and are doing well, and yes, um, one of many, um, the workshop, the other mm. workshops in Africa. But, but yes, I, I, so, so it's not that I feel the sense of responsibility, I must portray Africans in a noble light, no. no. I, I think that my, my, um, my art is really my responsibility. I think that my responsibility is to my art. I want to tell stories. I want to tell stories the best way I can. I want to tell stories that feel to me truthful. Mm. Because there are times when I'm editing a story and I think, mm, you know, I wish this woman were different, for example. I wish she were stronger. But I'm thinking, no, but that's not true to the spirit of the story. Mm. And it's also important to know that there are many, many women in the world who are not strong much as I wish that were different. There are many women who are, who are complicit in their own oppression. I wish that were not the case, but it is, and I think it's, it's imperative to tell the truth. So, so this is my long-winded way of saying, no, I don't feel any responsibility. However, there are many people who, I cannot tell you how many messages I get, Chimamanda, you represent Africa, therefore do not write about sex in your books. <laughs> or, or the, there's so many esteemed gatekeepers of Africa, ridiculous. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> I imagine that to be the tone in which they yeah, write. Yeah, yeah, well, you're probably right. Okay, so, so um, now that I'm sitting here with one of the most um, influential feminists of our time, I'm going to say, uh, yes. <laughs> so this is the kind of thing that puts you in a panic. You're like... <laughs> well, also, you, you, you don't know what to do with your face. Right? I'm like, should I smile? Should I look up? Like... What? <laughs> You, you drank the water in a perfect, it was perfect. Um, no, but we have to talk about the, the time that we're living in at the moment and about Me Too. Mm. And Me Too and the power of storytelling. Mm. So, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, when you were in Stockholm and you held a speech, you were talking about Me Too, and you... Oh, right. Yeah, and you shared your own sort of Me Too story. Yeah. One of... 
all the Me Too stories that we read and reflected on throughout this full year that has passed. Why did you feel the need of telling your Me Too story? Honestly, because I had been, um, I was so tired. I'd been traveling quite a bit. I was getting to Stockholm. I realized I didn't have anything to say in my speech. <laughs> so I thought, right, let's tell you. Um, partly true, actually, partly true. But, but really because I felt, now speaking of responsibility, I think yeah. this is where I did feel a sense of responsibility. Yeah. So becoming this sort of feminist icon. Yes. Yes. But I don't know. Maybe it's not a good thing. No, I mean, it's... <laughs> it's many things. It's true, but, you but know, just so, beco- so becoming a feminist that people sort of listen to, right? Yes. And, and for which I feel grateful, because it means I can talk about what I feel very, very passionately about. Mm. But I, I feel a pull and pull, a push and pull of wanting my privacy and what... I mean, I, so it's kind of wanting to be seen and not wanting to be seen. I constantly feel that. And sometimes when I talk about gender and feminism, I don't really want to talk about myself, but I realize it doesn't make sense to talk about the problems of being a woman if you're not going to make them personal. So I did feel a kind of responsibility at a time when, you know, you had women talking about their stories, and I found it very courageous of many of the women, Mm. because despite me too, I think we still live in a world that wants to silence women. I think that the, um, the impulse the societal impulse everywhere in the world is to silence women. And I just felt a responsibility. If you're going to be going up and down talking about why it's important to have gender equality, then maybe you should add your voice. And for me, it was a way of saying, I think it's happened to almost every woman. Mm. This being... That entitlement to women's bodies that men have and that society has... So I go into this man's office, I'm young, I'm talking about a book of poems that I'd written, and he's very sort of avuncular and nice, and he's telling me, oh, you're, I'm so impressed, you're so young, you wrote these poems. The poems were very bad, but anyway. So he at some point gets up, I'm sitting across from him, he just gets up very casually, walks across and just sort of puts his hand in my shirt. And it's all very casual, and so... (laughs) And, and I think for me, thinking about it now, what enrages me isn't even so much what he did, it's that the conditioning I had received mm. as a female in the world mm. was, you're responsible for making this happen or not happen, but what's most important is that you protect his ego. You cannot annoy him or upset him or offend him. So I'm sort of pulling his hand and I'm still saying, <laughs> I know, right? You're smiling mm. when really... Um, because you've, been, because you've been conditioned. You've been conditioned to think that you don't matter. Right? Uh, so thinking about it now, when I think about it now, that's what makes me very angry. Mm-hmm. I think many women um, have stories. It's, uh, me Too gives me hope because it shows that finally women's stories are being heard. However, <laughs> I also think I was a bit too optimistic about Me Too because I think that there's a lot it hasn't done. I think that, um, and what people like to call the backlash, yeah. has been too quick. 
and has taken up too much space in the conversation. I don't want to talk about the backlash. There's a backlash to every justice movement that it's irrelevant to me. Mm. But it's become such a part of the conversation that even that I find worrying. Right? I think that whenever it comes to women's issues in particular, it's one step forward and then suddenly it's like seven steps back. You're just pushed back. And um, yeah. Mm. <laughs> well, I am, um, well, I, I participated in um, like a panel yeah. that was talking about Me Too and what's next step for feminism. Mm. And one of the other panelists who had very much. Well, he had a lot of crit criticism towards the whole movement. Mm. One thing he talked about was, or one thing that he argued was that no good men rape and that we have good and bad men, that we can divide men into good and bad in society because we were talking about the fact that the Me Too movement showed that this is a problem that we see throughout our entire, entire society. doesn't matter the age or where you live, where you're from, doesn't matter. Yeah. This happens everywhere. But he said, well, it's, he tried to make it simpler than it, it is. And that had me thinking about one of your, um, the father character of Purple Hibiscus mm. that you explain very early on in the book and on the backside of the book as a good man, mm. that he is a good man. And... Um, what, what dangers do you see in society dividing men into good and bad in this way? And, and why was it important for you to, to write of this father as a good man, that society still, saw him as yeah. a good man at the same time that he was being abusive to his whole family? He saw himself as a good man. His family saw him as a good man, but he's also violently, violently abusive. Yeah. I don't think it's a helpful way to think of think of when it comes to um, I think when it comes to sexual assault, sexual violence, it's not useful to think of it about as, as being about good men and bad men. And and I think I come at it as a storyteller, which is to say that I think of human beings as as a jumble of things. And I think human beings, I think that they're men who are capable of incredible goodness and kindness, but who will still rape a woman? Because they have been conditioned to have this sense of entitlement about women's bodies. They've been conditioned, they've grown up in a world that tells them that women's needs are just not as important as theirs. That women exist to somehow fulfill something for them. Right? Um, and that idea that sex is a thing that men take and women give. All of these ideas, I think, the, you know, the kindest man has absorbed them. I find it really um, just not a useful way to think about it because then what it means is you can't even engage with it. How then do we talk about... Um, I mean, what does bad men mean anyway? You know, <laughs> mm. What does it mean? Does it mean that he, if he's mean and unkind and nasty, then he also rapes? But if he's kind and gentle and thoughtful, he doesn't rape. We should talk to all the women who've, who've been raped. Mm. And um, you, know, you start to realize it, it's not that simple. Mm. It's a lot more complicated. For me, part of the problem with the conversation is, and I think maybe it's, it's Me Too is so young, as a, you know, it's so young, and I think very early on, justice movements don't do nuance. Mm. Yeah, 
they very quickly sort of become extreme. I was talking to an old African-American man years ago, and he said to me, that in the early civil rights movement, there was no space for us to talk about complexity and nuance. Oh. It had to be black and white. It had to be, because we were fighting this battle. We've come to a place now where there is a bit of room for nuance in talking about race. I think with Me Too, um, it's so early that it can often seem that some things are unreasonable, right? But I think that's what happens with justice movements. And, um, and there are things that I actually cringe about because it wor what worries me is the long term. Mm. I don't want this to be a passing phase or a fad. I want it to be a sustained thing that really fundamentally changes the world. How do so we make it into it? By, it's probably not going to, I mean, by starting very, <laughs> maybe it's a bit unfair to demand this of the women's movement, but the sooner we start to make room for nuance, the better. The sooner we start to acknowledge that there are degrees to um, crime, right? In the same way that murder is not manslaughter. There are degrees I think it's important because that's the way... And I think the other thing, actually, is to um, <laughs> set up re-education camps for men. Yes. <laughs> hmm, this is very interesting. No, but I, I mean, I, I mean? say that... Well, I mean, round up all the men in the world and send them off. <laughs> all right, it's a joke, please, please. Because next thing I'm going to go on social media, she said... No, what I mean is... <laughs> It, the dramatic way of putting it is let's, let's do re-education comes, but I, I mean actually just more that in the conversations we're having about Me Too. Mm. Um, and look, I say this knowing that there are many women who will resist it because, and understandably so, because women are, are so tired of having to carry the burden. You know, you abuse us. We have to teach you how not to abuse. And I get that. Mm. <sighs> But what's the alternative? Right? Somebody has to teach. Because the thing is that there are many men who really, for whom th that entitlement is, is like breathing in air. It's normal and casual. It's, it's, it's such a part of them. Yeah. Because that's the way they've been conditioned from birth. Right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, what I mean is in having the Me Too conversations, we should also talk about here's actually what you should be doing. Right. So, so often I'll hear men say things like, oh, now I can't even compliment a woman. Oh, my God, now I can't talk to a woman. You know, that sort of nonsense. Yes. And it's important to say, actually, Me Too is very pro-romance and pro-love and pro-connections, as long as you recognize that it's two people involved, right? Romance is not grabbing a woman's breast, no. Romance is when the woman has her own needs that you actually are alert to. And, and that's what Me Too is about. I sometimes feel that people sort of criticize Me Too as, oh, now we can't have, you know, now, now there will be no courtship. Whatever the hell. And there's that famous letter that some mad French women wrote about how well, now we can't have kisses or whatever. Yeah, yes. And, but also one of the complications, I think, of Me Too is what, it, what I started to learn from reading the stories and, and the coverage, some of the coverage I found very problematic because, you know... There's a kind of the victimization of women where... All right, I'll tell you what I find myself thinking. What if for once they're not crying when they're telling their story? What if for once they're just filled with hot rage? It seems to me that even the way that Me Too is covered still, still um, aligns with 
with the traditional expectations of women. Because mm. fundamentally, women cannot be angry. Women are not allowed to be angry. The consequences are great. And so even in talking about your, your experience of abuse, what is accepted is tears. Mm. What isn't is rage. And I want to make room for rage, right? Mm. Um, but the other thing is, how about we say, right, so he did this, he did this. Well, actually, here's what he should have done. And I know it's babysitting men, and I know, but yeah, that's, that's what I would do. That's what I wish we had more of. Mm. Yeah. So, Chimamanda, one of the reasons that you're here has to do with a football team. You know, it has to do with Earth Corps and the fact that um, uh, a football team that does, apart from playing football, they do all kinds of cultural events and they have a book circle and they decided to read Americana. All right. So, of uh, course, we're going to bring out another person up on stage, and then we're going to continue talking about feminism. But we're going to bring out Judith Baker, Judith Baker, out on stage from Earth Corps. Hello. Nice to meet you, Judith. Hi. Because uh, um, I bet Ingmar talked a little bit about uh, uh, FCOA earlier uh, in the presentation. But actually, you guys are a big, huge part of bringing Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie here to us today because you started a book circle and you read Americana. Mm -hmm. But Judith, and then you invited Chimamanda here. I forgot to say that. <laughs> and of course, because it was a football team, I was like, yes. <laughs> That's yeah, because it's a bit random. <laughs> to us, it's a bit random. <laughs> but to you, this is not random. Judy, can, can't you tell us a little bit, how did this whole book circle, how did it begin? Where did the idea come from? Well, it began entirely by chance. Um, back in 2014, the football team wasn't at such a high level that it is now, and there wasn't any money. And consequently, the players travelled a long way by bus. And one day, I was in the office, and I passed one of the players who was carrying a book. And I just said, quite casually, what are you reading? And he said, oh, this. And it was Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. <laughs> and I did just that. And I, I think I rolled my eyes and was like, oh. And he says, you should, do you think I shouldn't be reading this book? And I said, no, it's fine, you're reading that book. He said, uh, you know, I'm a football player, but I'm not stupid. And I, he was getting a little bit confrontational, and I was backing off a little bit, going, yeah, that's, that's fine. He said, you've got a really stereotypical idea of what a football player is. Good for and him. So I'm going even further back. He called, you, he called you out. Yes. He did. He called he you did. out. And I'm thinking, I don't know him too well, and I don't really want to fight with him. And I think he might win. So I just said, yes. I said, you're right, I do. You're right, absolutely right. Yeah. And thankfully, he laughed. <laughs> and he said, you know, you should start a book group here. Hmm. And so I laughed again. And he said, no, seriously. And we had this conversation in which I said, look, if you tell me who's interested, I'll organise it. And a couple of days later, he said, OK, I've got eight guys, or seven or eight guys, and we want, we're going to do this. Mm. And he said, so you can pick the book. I said, oh, great. I said, OK. 
So then I, I, I didn't know what to do, because I thought, there's these guys and they want to read, and now I've got to think of a book that might suit these football players that I've got stereotypical ideas about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, if I, I don't want to pick something that puts them off. So then I'm, re- I'm on the internet then for hours going 100 best reads and book best reads for your book group. And, oh. and in the end, we, we started with Shadow of the Wind with um, Carlos Ruiz Zafon, um, which they loved. And I heard, because I, I didn't ever travel with them on the bus, but they didn't all read at the same speed. Mm. And they were travelling somewhere, and apparently, the story goes that suddenly one of them shouted out in the middle of the night, "Oh shit!" <laughs> and he was reading the book, to which the others who were, weren't quite as far on as him were going, "Don't tell us! Don't tell us! <laughs> Keep it to yourselves." <laughs> so that's where we started. And um, but how how come you? This was the first book. That, that you was read. the first book. Yeah. And then you read Americana. No, was Ameri- that your suggestion? No, no. We, you realize that suddenly when you have a book group, it becomes quite political. And mm. how the books get chosen is a thing. Um, so we decided our rules in our book group were nobody had to have read it before. Mm. And everybody had a choice. One choice. And then it would pass, pass around. Mm. So... Um, we read Americana. It was Brewer Nuri's choice. Mm. And, um, yeah, he was the, the captain of our team, and that was his choice. Mm. Uh, so The captain. The captain picked your book, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he did. Mm. And they came to love the book. They did, the yeah. Final. We, and we had uh, quite a lot of discussion about that, particularly as we were all foreigners... Mm. A lot of us were foreigners or had backgrounds that were not Swedish. Mm. Like, how does a place change you? Mm. And of course, you think it doesn't. You think, yeah, I could just go somewhere and I stay the same. But that's what we talked about quite a lot mm. and argued about. And, and we talked a lot about the fact that it was um, an African novel that gave us the experience of people who weren't fighting to stay alive. Mm. Because that's what we get often. Mm. Um, So we had these characters going through these emotional situations. Mm. um, But I think I remember talking a lot about the ending. We really liked the ending. One thing we didn't fight about was the end. Mm. And how (laughs) kind of untidy it was in the end. How... Those characters, uh, they were idealised in the beginning, but by the time they were together in the end, we didn't know that they're going to stay together. They've got all these outside pressures on them and baggage we that they've know. picked up. <laughs> yeah, we... So... So, <clears throat> back in 2015, when yeah. you heard about this, Chimamanda, you, you reacted quite strongly to this, <laughs> from what I've heard. And you even sent them, because, I mean... A lot of people read your books. But when you heard about this, you sent them a video message. Well, we're going to have a little look at that. Really? Yeah. Yes! <laughs> oh. It's, it's cute. We're going to look at the video message. Right here. Hello. Oh, this Lord have mercy. And I am sending you this message from the U.S. 
and I'm going to start by trying to speak Swedish and pronounce your name properly. Ostersund's Football Club. I'm very excited to be sending you this message. I'm very impressed to hear about your dabbling in culture and that you've produced a play and that you're reading and that you've read my novel. Thank you. Um, it means very much to me. It's an honor. And I think that literature and football um, go very well together. And so I urge you to continue to read books, continue to dabble in culture, because we have many, many ways of telling our stories. Football is one of them. Reading is another. And it's wonderful that you're joining both. So I send you my best wishes, and I hope I meet you someday soon. Bye. <laughs> And uh, Jude, you were talking about the, the captain yeah. of the football team. He was. Um, uh, don't let me butcher his name. No. Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> he, he's not here today because he moved to Bali. Good yeah. for him. Yeah, he, he, sh he should be here instead of me. I'm really sorry. No, I'm sorry <laughs> too. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> oh. No, but he moved to Bali. But he sent you a video message back three years later. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to have a look at that too. Hi, Chimamanda, Karin, and everybody else. I'm hoping you're having the best time even without the star of this show. Uh, <laughs> no, but I'm seriously heartbroken. I can't be there. But I got to tell you that the beaches in Bali, they helped me with the sorrow. <laughs> anyway, I want to try to express my gratitude for you, Chimamanda. The way your heart, mind, and soul works manifested into your books is such an inspiration for me to carry on believing that we can change racism, sexism, and that we can understand that everybody's equal. You know, I play football, and most of the time the locker room talk between spoiled, talented boys can be very hard to say the least. How unaware people can be is sometimes kind of scary. And it's not the easiest thing in the world for a man going into a dressing room full of testosterone to tell them how their thinking and perspective of the world is backwards. Mm -hmm. But because of you, and because of my wife, and because of other great people who in their own room trying to bring light into the darkness, it gives me the strength to do the same. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want you to know. That because you are the person you are, you make me go out in these uncomfortable situations because it's the right thing to do. You know, your books is really helping me to become a better football player. You're helping me to grow, you're helping me to learn, you're helping me to discover new parts of myself that I did not know exist. You're helping me to explore. And when that happens, I become secure myself. I see the truth, I feel inner peace, and that makes me a better person. And when I become a better person, I become a better football player. And for that development, I really need to thank you. If I could say anything to you, it's for you to never stop being you. You know how ignorant people may be, and if you sometimes feel that the world is not changing and nothing is getting better, just know that you're helping people like me every day. Because you're such an inspiration, and I really wish I could be there with you today so we can have a conversation. But uh, if you're ever planning to come into Bali, I'm uh, <laughs> waiting for you, and I can teach you how to surf. <laughs> and uh, until then, uh, I hope you're having the best time, and I hope I see you someday. Oh. <laughs> <That's so nice>. Wow. <laughs> will you accept his invite to Bali? Yes. <laughs> and will you surf? 
Yes. <laughs> Great. I actually find that very moving. Yeah. What part is the most moving part? All of it. But really the part about um, if I ever think that nothing is changing, to remember that, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> it's very lovely. Yeah, and I think that's something to carry on for everyone in here. Because sometimes you feel when you're, when you're a person who believes in feminism and believes that something that we have never experienced, but the wild thought about having mm. an equal society. Mm. I mean, sometimes it feels very slow, it very does, far It does, it does, quite often, actually. And sometimes it, it, um, it's, it's emotionally exhausting, you know? It's because yesterday, and, and, and sexism is the thing that... Um, so I wrote this, uh, yeah, this one, Dear Jawele. So there's a section there where I write about being angrier about sexism than I am about racism. Mm. Um, and, and I said, the reason I'm angrier is because I'm lonely when it comes to sexism. And there are people who, who took it to mean, oh, she's saying sexism is worse. And of course not. Right? Even the idea of comparing systems of oppression, I find very strange because I'm black and female. And I'm both, so I, it, you know, it's not like I choose to be one on one day and the other. So it's it's not even it's not possible to sort of separate the two and say which is worse. But only that when I talk about racism with the people I care about, they get it. Mm. When I talk about sexism with people I care about, I constantly have to make the case. I was making the case yesterday in the car to the airport to a woman I love, who's a member of my family, and suddenly she said something I just. I mean, I'm not going to be, I was so upset by it, you know, sort of saying, well, if, if, you know, what is rape? It's not rape unless he's put his organ inside the woman. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about um, the situation where a man was strangling a woman, didn't succeed in killing her, mm. fortunately, but, um, and attempted to, you know, but, but I, I said, but, you know, it's rape, it's assault. And she's like, well, no. Mm. And there was something about it that just made me think, my God, the way we continue to minimize violence against women, the way we continue to um, even justify it. So I found myself feeling so sad and so lonely. That's the thing about it. There's a loneliness to it. Mm. Um, just, just that loneliness of feeling, my God, I have, to, I have to convince the people I love that there's gender injustice in the world. Mm. <laughs> And it can be, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was good to hear. Yeah, that was good <laughs> to hear. That was nice. So Judith, for you and for, uh, for that you 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 were speaking Swedish very well in your. Oh. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's next for your cultural uh, project that you're doing up there? Because you're doing book circles. And when I met you today, you said last week, or maybe not yesterday, last week. No, it was last week. Last week I was in a musical. What? You're yeah. doing all kinds of stuff. Well, What's next? I just have a small part in that. It, um, <laughs> but you in a musical. That you had on a wig and that you were really mean. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I got to be a villain on stage. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the, the chairman and Karin and uh, the rest of the club, every year we do a culture project, which ha- we've done a singing one, a dance 
Bonn. Uh, they've written a book, or oh, let me think, an art project. And last week we did a musical with the Gladderhuddocks Theatre, yeah. which was incredible. <laughs> and the, if anyone doesn't know, the Gladderhuddocks Theatre is a special needs theatre group mm -hmm. that we worked with. And it, it's a way that it strips away all, everything that we are and puts, rebuilds us into this unit that creates something marvellous. Mm. And, and that's what we did last, last week. Mm. Um, so uh, we never know what the new one is until January. So oh. we'll find out then. And you'll let us know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and as for the book group, I'll just yeah. have to find out which of the guys are interested when they come back in January. Because... Mm. We've got a lot of new new guys starting in January, so. Well, thank you, Judith. And thank you, Earth, uh, if someone else is in the house. Thank you for bringing Shimamanda here you. to us. Thank you. So, so for the last part of this lovely conversation, uh, I'm very curious now, but everyone in here is very curious about your future. So am yes, I. you are, and I am. Yeah. Uh, no, but I'm thinking something that we heard here. I mean, the whole Chimamanda, the activist, and Chimamanda, the novelist. Mm -hmm. In the future, what do you think? Which part will have the largest stage? The do you have to choose, or what do you think? If I had, if I had to choose, I mean. Clearly, the no I'm a storyteller. I, I think that the. I think my ancestors brought me to the universe to tell stories. I think that my great grandmother's spirit guides my storytelling. I really believe that, um, and and I, I believe that because writing for me, particularly fiction. When I write nonfiction, it's I mean, it's all right. But when I write fiction, when it's going well, I'm transported. It's actually quite magical. It doesn't happen as often as I would like, but I do feel something larger than myself, which is why when I'm done with, with the story and I have to talk about it, I'm actually really just making up responses because th there's a lot about the process that's not conscious. You know, stories come to me. Sometimes I'm sort of in bed and I feel like I'm going to forget this. I need to get up. I need to get up. And I am possessed, I really, you know, both by light and dark forces. And <laughs> dark forces are more interesting. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so certainly storytelling. But the, the, the activism part, even being called an activist, makes me just ever so slightly uncomfortable. I grew Why? Up, well, I grew up in Nigeria where activists were real. I mean, they, the, the real deal. You know, they... They die. You are the real deal. I don't know. I mean, you know. You're the realest <laughs> deal in here. <laughs> You're so good for me. <laughs> I'll sleep well tonight. But you know what I mean. I mean, I just think that, you know, there's a certain sort of uh, growing up in, especially when Nigeria was under military dictatorships, people who were activists were people who were willing to die. There were people who were killed by the government. Mm. And so for me to hear activists, just because I happen to have the good fortune of having a platform talk about what I care about, and that platform came from my fiction. Right? Mm. I wrote novels that people read, and suddenly I had this platform, and I took on the platform to talk about um, the social issues that I feel passionately about, and they're really race and, and gender. I mean I, I mean, I care about 
justice everywhere, but, but I have my particular thing, and it's race and gender. And, and, I, and I, I know I will continue to talk about them, because, because I can't not. I mean, there are times when I just, I feel like, you know, I'm done, I'm done. I'm just going to go home, never go anywhere, read poetry, write fiction. Mm. And then I read the news, and something so infuriating has happened. Mm. <laughs> and... Um, and then I think, no, 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 this has to be addressed, right? So I'm texting my friends furiously about misogyny in the world and, and, and about how actually the, the, it's that misogyny exists in the world, not in overt ways in many cases. Mm. It's, it's, it's the fact that it's subtle that makes it even more difficult to engage with and to challenge because then people say, oh, you're just being too sensitive. Mm. And you really think it's because she was a woman, really? And I think that's the thing for me. I just want to pull pins from my skin. It's, it's unbearable. So I'll continue to talk about it, but, but I think of myself first as a storyteller and, I, and the many stories that are calling me. Mm. And, um, and that really separate for me. That the part of me that writes fiction is very different, I think, mm. from the part of me that gets very angry about, about everything that's unjust in the world. Mm. Um, but there's a, there's a, there's a, it takes a toll and there is a cost in terms of time, mm. um, but also in terms of mental energy. But, but I'm, it, you know, it's a choice I make. So I, I will continue to be both, but I think that um, if there is an afterlife and if there is, a, you know, going by the Christian mythology, if there is this great grand God who says to you, what did you do? I'll be like I told stories. <laughs> <laughs> you did it well. Ah, actually, not that. Yeah, I think I did. Okay. But but this feeling, uh, this thing that you say when you become possessed. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go back to that. No, is this something that you can uh, revoke yourself, or does it just have to? Because I hear sometimes writers say that the stories just comes to me, and I always think that's a lie because it sounds too good to be true. It's actually not a lie. It's true. It is true. So and and can you, but but can you control no, this? No. 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 Okay. Because I'm, I'm out here fishing for, like, we, we, when will we have the next book? <laughs> <laughs> but we'll, we have to ask. We can't ask the ancestors. No. We have to. We, the ancestors know. Only the ancestors know, sadly. So I, I wish I could tell you, really, but, yeah. but I can't. But, <laughs> and can I just say, this is, I don't think anybody has asked me, because I get this question all the time, and I just, I don't respond because I don't know the answer. But nobody's been this um, cleverly sneaky about the question. <laughs> so, um, I am. I have to commend you. <laughs> yes. Okay, so we'll just have to wait and see. Wow. Um, this has been amazing. Thank you so much you for too. sharing. And thank you all for listening. And thank you so and much, thank you Chimamanda, for being for wonderful. Being thank you. Thank you. Chimamanda, we're going to see you.